It's really good to see uh, Garrett and Zoe Polk back up here with us. Let's welcome them back with us this morning. Just keep praying for them and their family. And then uh, speaking of praying for people, be praying for, we have about 12 or so seniors that are at Pine Cove this weekend. Um, Anthony Garcia and Lauren Solanco, two former interns, took them to Pine Cove to serve this past weekend. So they're there right now. And, uh, so, and they also have the church van. So I'm sure everything's just fine. So just pray for them while they're driving back today um, from Tyler. And then I've got to get this one thing out. Of, before we start, I've got to get this one thing out of the way. So if you're, if you're currently wearing shorts, can you stand, please? Just stand. I want to see you stand up. I know I saw at least three. One over there. I'm not going to mention names. Come on, stand up. Let's see. And then Chris. Where's Chris? Chris. Anybody else? And Jared. Wow, okay. So notice, ladies, it's, it's all men. Men are the ones wearing shorts today. Um, but anyway, so I just wanted that to be known so that um, people can ask you the question, why, later, later on today. Uh, but good to see you guys uh, this morning. We're going to continue in the book of Joshua uh, today. And I want to give you some more, re- I'm trying to review every week so we have some context of what's going on um, as we get into the, today's chapter. So we've talked about this before, but the Israelites were set free from Egypt they wandered in the wilderness for how many years? It's a number. How many? What is it? 40 years. Be bold and confident with your answers, people. Uh, so 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. So Moses is dead, and Joshua has now become the new leader of Israel. He's going to take them into the promised land. Now, uh, Raymond Jimenez talked a few weeks ago about how they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. And then last week we talked about this concept of renewal and revival. And if you weren't here last week, I won't cover it, but you can listen to it on the podcast later. But we talked about a very awkward topic last week. If you missed it, you can listen to it on the podcast. Not going to rehash all that. Uh, so they're going through this, this process of renewal and revival before they enter into the promised land. And I also mentioned last week that today we're going to deal with a very difficult topic today. The Israelites are commanded by God to enter into the land that he promised to them, but there are people living there already. So God commands the Israelites to take out these people groups that are already in this land. So what do we do with that? It's a dilemma for us, right? If you haven't already come across people like this, you, you might come across people who will say things like this. Just bear with me here on this. They might say things to you like, do you really believe in a God who commands Israelites to take out people groups? I mean, isn't this just ethnic cleansing? This is genocide, right? This is what Hitler and Stalin and people like that, this is what the dictators, the world's worst dictators do. So how can this be a God of love? Have you even read your own Bible? Have you read the story of Jericho? Do you know what God tells the Israelites to do? I'll turn your attention to Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, where God says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
And so you believe in a God who would command something like this. And then he didn't stop there. Look at verse 21 of the same chapter. God says, this is what happened. And they, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So not only is the God that you worship cruel and vindictive to humans, but cruel to animals as well. You say your God is good, and he's a God of love. So where's the compassion for Jericho? Where is it? You see, this is the problem with religion. You think you have the truth. You can open your Bible and justify killing people in the name of God. That's what ISIS does. And so you may have heard someone take issue with these very difficult passages in the scriptures. So I want you to discuss this scenario at your tables. The kind of person I just presented to you, how would you handle a conversation with a person like that? Go ahead and discuss this for a few minutes. Okay, so it's starting to get quieter and quieter in here. So I'm starting to wonder if you've exhausted the possibilities of what you might be able to say to this person or how you might respond to it. Um, so I wanted to bring you to this place on purpose um, so that we can discuss um, some things to focus on as we, look, as, we, as we take a step back and look at the bigger picture. In fact, um, I'm not really even going to even get into the passage in Joshua chapter 6, Jericho until the very end. So I got like four pages of intro, and then last page is like Joshua 6. Because um, I want to talk about this, these ideas. So for many of you, it's not just that you'll encounter someone like this. It's you've, you've had these thoughts yourself. If, there, if you're an honest Christian, you've had these same kinds of questions yourself as you read the Bible. You read a passage and go, man, I... That's a passage that I don't want to read again. And you've had these own, your own questions and doubts about these things. So I want to frame the rest of our discussion this morning with a passage from Isaiah. And it's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 14. And here's what the prophet Isaiah writes. He says, and this is God talking through Isaiah. So God's asking these questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And to, who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? So this little section in Isaiah 40, what's, this, what's the main message here? There will be things that you and I do not understand about God. Let's just start right there. When, if this passage says anything to us, this is God asking questions of mankind. Saying, where were you when I 
created the earth? Where were you when I grew the mountains out of nothing? And so what this passage shows us in Isaiah chapter 40, when we question God, God can question us. God created everything. So God is saying, where were you when I created the waters? Where were you when I created the stars, the galaxies, grew mountains out of the earth? And he says, who can fully understand the spirit of the Lord? Who can instruct or teach God? And I've always felt this way. I've always felt very passionate about this. Beware of any person, whether they're Christian or not Christian, who would say something like, I just can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. Because there are so many things that you can put in that blank. Because when you think about the Bible, just certain characters in the Bible, do you realize how many Bible characters could have said that? Think of all the people in the Scriptures that could have said, I just can't believe in a God who would. Think of someone like Joseph. You know, I can't, I can't believe in a God who would allow me to spend so much time in prison. What about Daniel? I can't believe in a God who would allow my people, the Jews, to live in captivity for so long. How about Hosea? I just can't believe in a God who would ask me to marry a prostitute to be a living example to the people of Israel. Or how about someone like Job? I just can't believe in a God who would cause me so much suffering. There are so many people in the Scriptures that could have said that about God. So whenever we, whenever we question God, whenever we question God, God can question us. Whenever you and I start to question God, it's like we're assuming the role of teacher and God is the student. We, we turn the tables on God and we say, okay, we're going to switch the tables around here. We're going to be the teacher. You're going to be the student God. And we're going to tell you how it is. And this is what you and I tend to do. So if Joshua chapter 6, the invasion of Jericho, doesn't trip you up, then something else will. How can a good God allow suffering? How can a good God send someone to hell? I'm sure you have your question, the blank that you fill in. How can a good God allow? We all have those things. But here's where I find, I find great comfort in Isaiah chapter 40 because it's a reminder that the Bible, so remember, Isaiah 40 is in the Scriptures. We just read it. What it's also saying is the Bible tells us that we're not going to understand everything. We should expect to not understand everything. The Bible tells us this much. Later on in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Lift up your eyes and see who created these, meaning the stars. And I don't know how often you go out and just, I know we live in Texas and we live in a little bit of a city, so you don't just walk outside and go, wow, look at the stars tonight. They're really amazing. But I've been in certain parts of the world where there's very little I was in Africa on a mission trip one time, and there was just very little city light anywhere around us. And we walk outside, and it was just like, oh, wow, man, this is amazing. And you could see a lot more of what you and I don't normally see. 
when Isaiah refers to the stars, so I want you to hear this. Chapter 40 also says that he calls every star by name. God calls every star by name. Do you know how many stars we can apparently see with the naked eye or with a telescope, like a a regular telescope? It's only about 996, approximately. That's what scientists will say, anyway. They got it exact, pretty exact. Do you know how many stars are in our galaxy, they estimate? Here's what scientists will say, just in our galaxy alone. 100 to 400 billion I love when scientists who pride themselves on accuracy, like they just say, yeah, it's somewhere between 100 and 400 billion. Like we're like, that's a really broad deal. You guys can't narrow it down better than that. And yet they don't even know. That's how broad, somewhere between that, those two numbers. Do you know how many galaxies they believe are in the universe? Again, how do they know? I have no clue. At one time, they said there could be 200 billion galaxies. And now they say there could be 10 times that. So I don't know, mathematicians, is that 2 trillion? 10 times 200 billion? Is that, I don't know. It's a lot. That's galaxies. Wrap your mind around that. And it says God knows the name of every single star. This is mind-blowing how infinite God is. Here's why all this is important. Because we can't, God is so infinite, we can't even see all that He's made. Right? So is it possible that we might not be able to see and understand everything there is to know and understand about God. So let's just start there. Because by comparison, when I paint for you a picture of just the vastness of God's universe, by comparison, do you know how much the human brain weighs? Anybody have an idea how, how big the human brain is? How many pounds is it? I heard someone say seven one of the guys like, mine weighs seven pounds, you know. Um, it's actually about three pounds. I've actually heard that if you take, is this right, Mr. Eshbal? If you take your, your two fists, that's about a heart, right? And then a brain is about your two fists put together. That's about the size of a brain. So this little three-pound bowl of oatmeal that you have in your brain, in your, in your head, right? This is the thing that we use to question God in all of his infinite wisdom and magnificence. I want you to just let that sink in for a minute. Our little three-pound brain is the thing that we use to question this infinite God and turn the tables on God and become the teacher to God and tell him what he can and cannot do. All right? So let's just start the conversation right there. So whenever, whenever we question God... God questions us. And Isaiah chapter 40 is a, is a reminder of that. You might say it like this. You and I cannot claim to know justice better than the one upon whom it is based. 
So if there are things that God has made that we will never see or comprehend or understand, how much greater chance is there things that God knows that we do not know and will never comprehend or understand? And so when it comes to justice, we can't come to the Bible and just assume that we have this superior sense of justice that, that supersedes even God himself. So we have to start the conversation right there. But here's how I'd begin to answer the questions of the person I presented to you earlier. If God is the creator and the sustainer of all life, then who ultimately has the right to give life and to take life? So God does, right? Now, we already know that every single person um, will die a physical death. The Bible tells us that. You and I get hung up on the how and the when. That's what feels wrong to us. And I understand I feel the same way in many situations. We get hung up on the how and the when. The timing's not right, or the way in which this person passed away, it was just horrific, and so we, we get hung up on those things. But we know that every single person who's ever been born is going to eventually die. So um, the question becomes, why did God want the Israelites to take out these people in the promised land? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18 that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So Deuteronomy 20, we see God saying, this is why we're removing these people, the Canaanites, from the land, because they are going to cause you, Israel, to get wrapped up in idolatry. So that's the first thing you need to know. If they remain, they would fall into idolatry. And eventually, the Israelites did fall into idolatry. And what happens when Israel falls into idolatry? Well, lots and lots of evil breaks out in the land. You want to get really depressed? Read the book of Judges. Anyone read the book of Judges? Raise your hand. Isn't it a depressing book? It is a depressing book. It does not end well. But it's a depressing book. It's all about Israel and idolatry. You you read it and you go... This is surely talking about some other nation, right? No, it's talking about Israel and the evil that happened in Israel as a result of their idolatry. I would also ask this question, who ultimately has the right to judge all sin and all evil? And I'll turn you to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, where it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land. This is referring to Israel. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. And will be servants there, also Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve. That's also Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here. So meaning Israel now. They shall come back here, meaning the promised land, in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And I want you to just focus in on this last phrase. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's God saying? 
God is saying, your people, your descendants are going to go to Egypt. They'll be enslaved 400 years. I'm going to judge Egypt. Israel's going to leave and eventually come back to the promised land. And so what does verse 16 mean? God is saying he's going to use the Israelites to bring judgment on the Amorites. So I want you to just track with me here. I know this is complicated, but track with me. God is saying hundreds of years before it happens that the Israelites are going to bring iniquity or judgment on the Amorites, the people that are already in this land, this promised land. So what does this mean? That means that God knows the evil of the Amorites before it even happens. And he also knows, we also see in this passage that God is patient. He knows of the Amorites' evil and says, my people are going to judge this wicked nation, the Amorites. So God knows of their wickedness. He also is patient because he's going to wait hundreds of years before he actually brings about judgment on the Amorites. He gives the Amorites plenty of time, but eventually their time runs out. Now, even God says, I'll turn you to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5 now. Even God says there's nothing special about the Israelites that they get to be the ones who bring judgment on some of these people groups. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. It says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, Israel, are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what you just saw in Genesis 15, Deuteronomy 9 is talking about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham to bring judgment on these people groups in Canaan, the promised land. But it's not because Israel is great and superior that they get to be the ones that actually carry this out. God's going to use them in this way, though. So I'll ask the question again, who has a right to judge evil? Well, God does. God has the right to judge evil. I want to remind you, as you read a passage like Joshua chapter 6, and you're about to read it in a minute, the invasion of Jericho, and it's a tough passage to read. The verses I showed you at the beginning of the, of the passage are the hardest ones you're going to read in, the, in Joshua chapter 6. But as hard as those verses are to read, are you forgetting about the worldwide flood? I mean, we turn, we turn Noah's Ark into a theme for a kid's room. How morbid is that? Let's paint the, the walls and put Noah's, Noah's Ark and have little animals in the, in the ark. It's so awesome, right? And it's like this is the, God's judgment and wrath on mankind. He kills everyone except for a handful. Let's put that on a kid's room. Good idea. Are we forgetting what God did at the flood? Are we forgetting about what... God did it Sodom and Gomorrah? You have a problem with that? What about, you know, when I, when I read the Bible, it just looks like God brings judgment on evil and does it throughout all of Scripture. 
Remember the golden calf incident after they were set free from, the, from Egypt? In the wilderness, they worshiped the golden calf. And now this is Israel, remember? Do you remember what happened after Moses comes down off the mountain and they are um, worshiping this golden calf? Do you remember what happened? Is that like sleet? <laughs> All right, we're going to be in here for a long time, guys. So... Don't. <laughs> all right, just hang tight. I'm going to push through this, all right? Someone go to H-E-B and get all the milk. Do it now. <laughs> all right? Just hang tight. Hang tight. I thought that was the AC at first, and I was like, man, the AC is super loud today, but I guess not. So hang with us for a minute here. So um, I want to remind you, when, when the Israelites worshiped the golden calf, here's what happened. God commanded the Levites to go and take up a sword and kill off 3,000 men that were idolaters. Did you know that? These were Israelites. These are ones that are God's people. So God is equal opportunity when it comes to carrying out his judgment on evil and idolatry. Later on, the Israelites turn their back on God. He allows these pagan nations to judge Israel. So God allows pagan nations to turn around and take Israel captive and judge Israel later on in the Old Testament. So people ask, how can a good God ask his people to destroy the Canaanites? But here's another question people ask. How can a good God allow so much evil? Why doesn't he just destroy all evil? And then we open the Bible and we see where God destroys evil. And then we ask, how can a good God destroy all these wonderful people? Do you see the conflict that we run into? My kids asked us this question. We attempt to have like a family devotional about once a week. And and so we'll sit around the table and we'll get a little, uh, little kid Bible and read through a story and talk about it. And my daughter, she's only seven. She asked some super deep questions. Questions that made me look at my wife and go, I don't know, you need to answer that one, you know. And she asked questions like, why doesn't God just get rid of all evil? And, and we start to answer the question, and we start to say, well, I said, sweetie, if he, if he just got rid of all evil, like right now, well, he'd have to get rid of me and you and a whole bunch of people we're praying for right now. So do you understand, if, if you ask the question, how does God allow evil, it's also his patience that allows there to be sin and evil and hopes that they'll come to repentance. This, I think, is what he's doing many times in his scriptures. Why doesn't he wipe out the Amorites now? Well, in Genesis 15, patience, patience. And then when the patience runs out, God brings his wrath and judgment on those that he feels no longer are entitled to his grace. And as hard as this is for us to to wrestle with, I want you to look now at Joshua chapter 6. I'm going to summarize Joshua 6 for you. We're not going to read the whole section at all. But Joshua chapter, this is when the Israelites come into the promised land and they're, they're now going to take out Jericho. So here's what God tells them to do. I'm going to summarize the whole chapter for you real quick. So God tells Joshua, 
he says, march around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times. And you're going to have these priests. They're going to have trumpets. They're going to blow the trumpets. The people are going to shout. Jericho's walls are going to fall down flat. People are going to invade the city. And if you look closely at the passage, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God, is at the center of this whole thing. The, the Ark of the Covenant was God's um, the symbol of God's presence with the people of Israel. And if you read the whole chapter, it's at the center of this parade around the city. And I think here's why God is doing that, because God wants his people to know that he's with them as they enter into the promised land. But as hard as this passage is for us to wrestle with, God's presence is right in the middle of it. And when God judges evil, he owns it. He doesn't apologize for it. He owns it. His presence is right there with his people. You and I worship a God who is good, but his goodness demands justice. His goodness demands justice. So Joshua does just what God commands him to do. And I want you to look down at Joshua 6, verses 17 to 18, where it says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Remember Rahab from three weeks ago. She's the one that housed the spies. This was an act of faith for her. She was a prostitute in Jericho. The rest of this passage is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen next week when they don't obey the commands that God says here, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. We'll unpack that more next week. But we'll see how next week personal sin leads to corporate consequences for the nation of Israel. So let's go back to Rahab again. Uh, Joshua 6, look down at verses uh, 22 to 23 where it says, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. So because of Rahab's faith in God, God spares her entire family in Jericho. And we haven't really talked this morning about all the evil of Jericho, but you know things are bad when a prostitute is the most righteous one in the city. So this prostitute has put her faith somehow in Yahweh with very limited knowledge. And God spares her whole family because of her faith. And so I think this is... If you look at the word count of the chapter, there's a lot of words devoted to Rahab and um, her being saved from this destruction on this day. 
So what makes her righteous is her faith, her belief. It's not just her actions. Her actions are a result of her faith. But it's her faith, her belief in Yahweh that, that is her salvation. And listen, I know this is a hard passage. But don't miss this. Don't miss God's salvation in the midst of this judgment. He saves Rahab. In the midst of this divine judgment, there is divine grace. So even though we see God's judgment on the people and have to trust that God knows what he's doing exactly, we still see a glimmer of divine grace in the midst of this divine judgment. God saves a woman that you would least expect him to save out of the midst of this city called Jericho. So when you, answer the, when you ask the question, things like, how can a good God, I would tell you that a good God provides a way out, and a good God offers salvation. And this is just what he did for Rahab in the city of Jericho. And it's the same thing he offers to us. So as you get caught up in these questions and your friends get caught up in these questions about how can a good God do, always remember that whenever you have those kinds of questions, there is an escape. And it's in Jesus Christ. And so a good God provides a way out. A good God gives grace even in the midst of judgment. So I want you to finish up by having some discussion. I understand that many of you guys probably have parents that are like, get out here now. Um, I understand that. If you have to leave, you have to leave. But um, those that can stay or want to stay, have some discussion at your tables with these questions.